I've always been fascinated by the Secret Service, the skilled professionals whose sole purpose revolves around protecting the President of the United States, the Vice President of the United States, other dignitaries. I've always been fascinated by, by the Secret Service. And what I want you to understand this morning as we look at the Word of God, the truth I want you to walk away with today is that we have a divine secret service watching over our lives. We're going to talk about God being our protector. We're going to see that in 1 Samuel chapter 19. So turn there with me. 1 Samuel chapter 19 as we continue our study through this Old Testament book. We'll read verse 1 together. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. How's everybody feeling this morning? All right, sleepy. Somebody's okay, all right. Glad you're here. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1. The Bible says, Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And we come to you because we need you. We need your presence. We need your spirit opening the eyes of our hearts that we might see the timeless truths of Scripture. And I pray that you would help us to to hear what you're saying to us. I pray you'd help us to understand what you're saying to us. I pray you'd help us to apply what you are saying to us. Lord, we ask you to transform our lives, to encourage us, to build us up as we seek to serve you and live for your glory. And Lord, I ask you to establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've journeyed through the book of 1 Samuel, we have seen how the Lord took the kingdom away from Saul, told him he was going to take the kingdom away and give it to a man after his own heart, a young man named David. But before David would officially be the king of Israel, there would be a time period where Saul was still technically the king. The people recognized him as being the king. And this time of transition would be very difficult for David. We saw in chapter 17 that David defeated Goliath. We saw in chapter 18 that David made a lifelong friend named Jonathan. We saw last week that David had married Saul's daughter, Michael. And David was seen as a hero in Israel. But David had one major problem. Saul. Saul was insanely jealous of David's growing popularity. And so Saul decides to try to kill David. That's what we see here in chapter 19. He said to Jonathan, his son, and all his servants, put David to death. And we find ourselves in this chapter where Saul is marshalling all of his resources to kill young David. Now what I want to do is I want to walk through this text this morning uh, by 
taking us through a countdown. Four, three, two, one. And after we walk through the text, I want to make some implications for your life and for my life, how this passage should affect the way we live, and it should affect our trust in God. So let's just kind of walk through this passage as we count down, starting with four. I want you to see, first of all, four escapes. There are four escapes found in this passage. Four escapes. The first escape happens because of David's advocate. Look what it says there in verse 1. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death, but Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. Remember we saw last week that the Lord knit Jonathan's soul to David's soul. They were close friends. And Jonathan uh, told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. And if I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you. And since his deeds have been very beneficial to you, for he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel, you saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? We see here Jonathan functioning as David's advocate. He says, Dad, David's done nothing to harm you. Nothing but good has come uh, into your kingdom since David has shown up. He defeated Goliath. He rallied the troops to overthrow the Philistines, in a mighty battle. He's not sinned against you. Why would you try to kill him? And look what happens in verse 6. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. So David escapes the first attempt of Saul to kill him because he had an advocate with King Saul, his advocate was his good friend named Jonathan. And God uses Jonathan to, to help David escape from Saul. But there's a second escape in this text. We see David's flight. David's flight. Look what the Bible says in verse 8. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand. Now remember we said last week that this evil spirit from the Lord was an act of judgment from God on Saul's life. Saul had rejected the Lord by making some very foolish decisions. So the Lord withdrew his protecting hand, withdrew his presence from Saul, and allowed this evil spirit to come and torment Saul as an act of judgment. So he's sitting on his throne. He has a spear in his hand. Here comes the evil spirit. Things are not going to go well. Look what happens next. It says... David was playing the harp with his hand, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence, so he stuck the spear into the wall. So Saul hurls the spear at David. David is quick enough uh, to jump out of the way. And look what happens next. And David fled and escaped that night. I don't blame him, do you? I mean, he got out of town. He fled. He ran. David's flight. And so David escapes again. Saul, the king, wants to kill him, and David sees his murderous intentions, and he runs, and he escapes. But there's a third escape in this chapter, and it deals with David's warning. David's warning. Look what happens in 
Verse 11. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at his head and covered it with clothes. You say, wait, why does Saul's daughter have a household idol? Well, this might tell you something of the spiritual condition of Saul's family. It might tell you something about Saul's spiritual leadership of his home. I mean, she's worshiping an idol, and she takes the idol and puts it in the bed, takes goat's hair to make it look like someone is laying in the bed. And it says in verse 14, when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, self-preservation, here she lies. He said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? So she basically tells her father that, that David threatened her. That's why she had to let him go. But notice, David escapes in this passage because Michael warns him. Maybe David thought, well, he's just having a troubled moment. Uh, you know, he, the evil spirits come upon him. Maybe he'll settle down a little bit. And Michael comes to David and says, he is not simmered down. He is not settled down. He is posting men around the house. He is going to kill you. And she warns him, and David is lowered down through a window, and David escapes a third time. But there's one more escape in this text. Four escapes. Look what happens in verse 18. We see here David's bodyguard. David's bodyguard. Verse 18, now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. And it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. So David goes to his mentor, goes to the man of God, the prophet of God, the spiritual leader named Samuel. He has nowhere else to go, so he goes to Samuel, trusting that Samuel would know what to do. Verse 20, Then Saul sent messengers to take David, but when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel, standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So basically, Saul's secret police are coming to capture David and put him to death. And they're walking up, and they see Samuel prophesying, and, and the, the, the young prophets prophesying with him, and the Spirit of God comes upon them and changes their total direction. Instead of arresting David, they join in the worship service. And this is not the only time it happened. Look what happens next. When it was told Saul, verse 21, he sent other messengers, so they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. We see here that as Saul sends men to arrest David, to kill David, David has some secret service. David has a bodyguard. Who's the bodyguard? Look what it says. It says there in verse 20, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers. So even as David is confronted with this very real threat to his life, God shows up, his Spirit shows up to protect David from the murderous intentions of the household of Saul. Four escapes. This entire chapter is about escaping. But that's not all we see. We see four escapes, but also we see three kings. Three kings. Look what the Bible says in verse 1. It says, 
Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. Who was Saul there in verse 1? He was the reigning king. The reigning king. The Lord said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, but he was still functionally the king. The people recognized him as king. He was sitting on the throne of Israel at this time. He was the reigning king. He was the one calling the shots. He was the man in charge of this nation. But in addition to the reigning king, we see the king in waiting. Look what he says in verse 1. Saul told Jonathan his son, and all starts to put David to death. Remember, the Lord had told David, you will be the next king. Samuel anointed him as the next king of Israel. And David was the king in waiting. He was moving toward that moment where all of Israel would recognize him as the king of the nation. The king in waiting. You say, wait, I see King Saul. And I see king in waiting, David. But who's the third king? You said there were three kings in this text. Well, notice there in verse 20 that as the men of Saul come to arrest David, to kill David, it says, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. There's a third king in this text, and the king is the king of kings. It's God himself. And God shows up to protect David. I like what Dale Ralph Davis writes. The point is clear. David's back is to the wall. Saul will not grant him sanctuary even in Samuel's company. So God sends forth his spirit in raw, irresistible power on Saul's police forces and compels them into helplessness. I like that. Saul, however, was too dense to get the point. Because something changes in the passage. After Saul sends three groups of men to kill David and gets the message back that nothing had happened, Saul goes himself. Look what happens in verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large wall that is in Sikhu. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. He proceeded there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. So it came upon his his service, but it came upon him also, so that he also or went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth and Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and laid down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? What's happening here? Saul comes to kill David, and the Spirit of God comes upon him and turns his murderous mission into a worship service. He begins to prophesy truth about God, because the Spirit of God is influencing him to do that. And he makes him lay down. He, he causes Saul, the king, to be helpless under the power of God. You see, there are three kings. What, what I believe is happening here is the king of kings is showing the reigning king and the king in waiting who's really in charge. That's what's happening here. He's letting him know, hey, I'm the one who's calling the shots. I am the king of all kings. So there are three kings found in this text. But not only are there four escapes and three kings, there are two promises. Two promises that serve as a backdrop to this entire passage. Because someone may read this and say, wait, what is going on? I mean, Saul is using all the resources of his kingdom. He's got soldiers, he's got spies, he's got secret police. Why can't Saul kill one young man? I mean, what's the deal? Well, here's what's happening. In this passage, we see God keep his word to remove one king and raise up another. 
Remember over in 1 Samuel 13, 14, God made two promises. The first promise was this. Saul, because of your foolishness, I'm going to remove the king from your, uh, the kingship from your household. You will no longer be the king. Your demise is coming. That's promise number one. Promise number two is when he said, I found a man after my own heart who will be the next king. So God had made those two promises. I'm removing the, the, I'm removing the, 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 the rain from you and giving it to another. And that's the backdrop of this passage. God is simply keeping his promises. He's going to carry out his plan. He's going to accomplish his will. And that's why King Saul cannot kill David. God had promised to take away the kingdom from Saul. God had chosen a new king from among the sons of Jesse. And no matter how hard Saul tried, he could not thwart the will of God. Oh, he wanted to kill David badly. But he could not. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. And they could not keep God, Saul could not keep God from holding fast to the promises he had made. So we see four kings. And we see, I mean, sorry, we see four escapes, three kings. We see two promises. And then last, we see one major truth. One major truth. Wait, how would you sum up chapter 19? Or what is this chapter all about? What should we walk away with? Here it is. God is in control and is perfectly capable of protecting his servants as he works out his perfect plan. God is in control and he is perfectly capable of protecting his servants as he works out his perfect plan. Now, that statement carries with it some implications for your life. That ought to affect the way we trust God and to affect the way we look at our circumstances. There are some implications for you and some implications for me. And what I want to do is I want to show you a wonderful connection in Scripture. This story is commented on by David himself over in Psalm chapter 59. So turn with me to Psalm 59. We're going to look at what David says about this story. And draw from it some implications for our lives. Psalm 59. Look what it says right under the designation of the psalm. Before verse 1 in small letters. It says, for the choir director. This was a, meant to be a song. Set to Al Tashith. Uh, some sort of uh, musical accompaniment. A miktam of David. Here's the setting of. This psalm, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. When Michael warned him and he was, uh, he was delivered, he escaped from Saul, the second escape in our text this morning. So Psalm 59 is a commentary by David on that night. It's a commentary by David on 1 Samuel chapter 19. I wanna, don't you want to see what David has to say about that night? David has some wonderful things to say here's the first thing we can draw from david's words you can trust god in the midst of overwhelming and intimidating circumstances because he's in control and and perfectly capable capable of protecting his servants you and i can trust god in the midst of overwhelming and intimidating circumstances look what happens in psalm 59 
verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity. Save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men, he calls them. Fierce men, launch an attack against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. You, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to those who are treacherous in iniquity. Selah. Look at verse 6. They return at evening. They howl like a dog and go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For they say, who hears? David compares the, the men of Saul to wild dogs closing in around him, coming to murder him and take his life. David was experiencing some very difficult, some very intimidating, some very overwhelming circumstances. But notice, in the midst of these circumstances, David calls out to God. David trusted God in the midst of the difficulty. Now, how many of you realize that life is difficult? Raise your hand if you realize that. We live in a dangerous world, right? I mean, we live in a, 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 a tough setting in this world. Life is difficult. Danger could come at any moment, knocking on our door. Harm could come at any moment, knocking on our door. And if you realize that, and at the same time realize that God is your protector, then you will trust God in the midst of the danger. You'll trust God in the midst of the overwhelming circumstances. I read my quiet time this morning, Psalm 56, verse 3, well-known verse. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. That's what David does. He's afraid. He's bombarded by enemies, and he simply puts his trust in God. He knew God was his protector. He knew he could trust God in the midst of the danger. So what do we learn from the fact that God is our protector? We learn that no matter what comes our way, we can trust God. He is trustworthy, and we should trust God just like David. Here's the second implication for your life and my life that come comes from the words of David. Nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. And if he allows it, it will ultimately be for your good and his glory. Now, when I said that God is your protector, I did not say that you'll never experience hardship. I didn't say that at all. As a matter of fact, all of us will experience difficulty. We will all experience Deep and dark valleys. We will all go through great pain in this life. There, there's no question of that. So when I said God is our protector, I did not say that you'll never go through anything difficult. What I'm saying, biblically speaking, is this. That God is in control. He's sovereign. He's on his throne. And nothing can touch your life unless he allows it. And if God, in his infinite wisdom, allows it, he has a purpose behind it. And no matter how difficult it is, it's ultimately for your good and for his glory. So isn't it comforting to know that in the midst of your difficulty, God's on his throne? Aren't you glad that God's not in heaven wringing his hands saying, uh-oh, didn't see that coming? 
No, God's on his throne. He's in control. He's calling the shots. David understood this. Look what it says in verse 8 of Psalm 59. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. I like that. You scoff at all the all these all these enemies of God, these treacherous men, these howling dogs. God laughs at them. Because of his strength, I will watch for you. For God is my stronghold. My God and his loving kindness will meet me. God will look, let me look triumphantly upon my foes. David knew he had some great foes, but he knew that God was greater than his foes. He knew that God was in control. He knew that God was sovereign. And the sovereignty of God, as Charles Spurgeon said it so beautifully, the sovereignty of God is a pillow we can rest our head on at night. The fact that God is in control and nothing can touch our life unless God allows it should be a very comforting thought for you and for me. Right? Romans 8 says like this. God works everything together. Good stuff, bad stuff, hard stuff, wonderful stuff. He works it all together for the good of those that love him, to those called according to his purpose. Nothing, listen to me, nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. Nothing. He is your protector. He is my protector. Nothing. Even Satan himself. You remember what happened over in the book of Job? Satan basically says, well, the reason that Job worships you is, Lord, is because he just, because all the good things you give him. If you take away all the stuff, all the blessings, he won't worship you anymore. So God allows Satan to come against Job, to take away all the stuff, to prove that you can still say in the midst of great pain and despair, blessed be the name of the Lord. That you can love the giver of the gifts more than the gifts themselves. And so God, listen, allows Satan to afflict Job for his own purposes, for his own plans, for his own glory. He allows Satan to come against Job. And Satan does great damage, great brings great harm into Job's life, but Satan was on a leash. He could only go as far as God would let him go. Nothing, not even Satan, can touch your life unless God allows it. And if he allows it, it's for your good, ultimately, and for his glory. That's implication number two. Here's implication number three. This kind of relationship, where God is your protector, where you're in his hand, this kind of relationship is only available through Jesus. Say, wait, I want to know that God's my protector. I want God to protect me and watch. I want to know I have that kind of relationship with God. Listen to me. That kind of relationship only comes through Jesus Christ. Look what happens in Psalm 59. Verse 13. David says, Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more. That men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Say law. They return at evening. They howl like a dog and go around the city. They wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. But as for me, watch this. As for me, David says, I shall sing of your strength. I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. 
Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold, the God who shows loving kindness. David had a relationship with God. He had experienced the loving kindness of God. He said, wait, how do I experience the love of God? How do I experience the protection of God on my life? Listen, it's only through Jesus. The Bible uses many different metaphors to speak of God's protection over our lives. Some are mentioned in the last two verses of this psalm. Here in this psalm, God is called strength. He's called a stronghold, a refuge. In other places in Scripture, he's called a shield. God is called a shepherd that watches over his flock. But my favorite picture of who God is and the way he cares for us is the picture of God being our Father. Who protects like a dad, right? Who protects like a father? And all throughout the page of Scripture, God is called our Father. Now here's the key. Say, wait, I want God to be my Father. Here's what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me if you want god to be your father you've got to embrace jesus christ as your lord and savior he's the only way to have this kind of relationship with god the kind of relationship that david had where he could trust him and know that god was protecting him the only way to have that kind of relationship where god is your father and you are his child is through jesus christ he's the only way there's no other way to god all roads do not lead to god the only way to god is through The sacrificial work of the risen Lord Jesus. It's the only way. I like how John Calvin says it in his Institutes. He writes, Whenever we call God the creator of heaven and earth, let us at the same time bear in mind that we are indeed his children, whom he has received into his faithful protection to nourish and educate. In other words, Calvin is saying, isn't it wonderful that we can call the creator of the universe Father and know that we're his children and know that he's taking us under his wings as a protector? Isn't that wonderful? We should should dwell on that thought, he says. A.W. Pink writes this. How wonderful is the care of God for his own. Though invisible, how real are his protecting arms. Not a shaft of hate can hit till the God of love sees fit. What peace and stability it brings to the heart when faith realizes that the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. He quotes from Psalm 34, verse 7. He goes on to write, Men may be filled with malice against us. Satan may rage and seek our destruction, but none can touch a hair of our heads without God's permission. The Lord Almighty is the shield and buckler, the rock and fortress of all those, listen, who put their trust in Him. You cannot count on Him as a protector, as a father, as a shepherd, as a fortress, until you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I quoted the verse a little bit earlier. That God works everything together for the good of those that love Him to those called according to his purpose. That that promise is for those that are his. He's the only way to experience the kind of protection 
that David experienced in this text. Ira Sankey was the song leader for the D.L. Moody Crusades in the late 1800s. He was to D.L. Moody what George Beverly Shea is to Billy Graham. He was the song leader. And on Christmas Eve 1875, Iris Sankey was traveling down the Delaware River on a steamboat. And some passengers on that boat recognized him, and they asked him to sing a song. They even gave him some, some recommendations. They made some requests. But Sankey chose to sing on that ship, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us, written by William Bradbury. One of the stanzas begins like this. We are thine, do thou befriend us, be the guardian of our way. When he finished singing that song on the deck of that steamboat, a man stepped forward and asked him this question. He said, sir, did you serve in the Union Army? And Mr. Sankey said, well, yes, I did. He said, did you serve in the spring of 1862? And Mr. Sankey said, well, I did. And the man said, do you remember a bright moonlit night when you were serving as a picket? Mr. Sankey said, well, I do remember that night. And the man said, well, I was fighting in the Confederate Army. And you were there in the bright moonlight, and I was standing in the shadows behind a tree. You never saw me. And I thought, surely, this man is about to die. He said, I readied my gun. There was no way I could miss you in the bright moonlight. But just before I aimed and pulled the trigger, you began to sing. And so I paused. I remembered hearing my mom sing songs like that. He said, you sang the same song that I just heard you sing on this boat. And I heard you sing those same words. We are thine. Do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. And he says, those words stirred my heart. And he lowered his gun. And this former Confederate soldier said this. I thought the Lord who is able to save that man from certain death must surely be great and mighty. Can I tell you this? The Lord who protects us, the Lord who watches over us, sometimes in obvious ways, sometimes in very invisible ways, He must surely be great and mighty. And I hope you know Him as Father.